From the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia, this is Great Talks at the APS, a podcast where we ask scholars about some of the most thought-provoking talks given at the society. Since 1743, the APS has hosted the greatest minds from around the world to talk about cutting-edge research, new discoveries, and timeless issues. Listen in every month for a new episode. And now here's your host, Dr. Patrick Spiro. Welcome to Great Talks at the American Philosophical Society. Uh, my name is Patrick Spiro. I'm the librarian and host of tonight's session, and we're joined by Kathleen Hall Jamison, the Packard Professor at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania, and the Director of the Annenberg Public Policy Center. Um, thank you for joining us. Good to be with you. We're here to talk about a, a talk you gave at the American Philosophical Society at one of our meetings in 2013. The topic was the demise of fact in political discourse five years ago. It was a forecast of coming attractions. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I, I want to talk tonight about that moment in time, 2013, and your thoughts at that time, and then talk a little bit about how it's changed uh, in these five years and where it's going. My concern in 2013 was that institutions that I call custodians of knowledge, that is, the institutions that are set up to be methodologically rigorous and that pull together what we know in a fashion that is able to advise us about what, how we should use that knowledge, were just beginning to be attacked in politics. What do the attacks on the knowable look like? This is Newt Gingrich calling the CBO, Congressional Budget Office, a reactionary socialist institution. You can read his words. And here's what happens when a pseudo-group is set up against a scholarly group to blunt debate. Children and all the social science shows that. Although the American uh, uh, Academy. Academy of Pediatrics disagrees. And the American it's College of Pediatrics came, pediatricians came out the other way. EJ, let me get it. And fact checkers come to this with you know, their own sets of you know, thoughts and, and beliefs. And you know what? Um, we're not going to let our campaign be dictated by the And so there had been an attack on the Bureau of Labor Statistics, arguing that you couldn't trust its data. Now, it wasn't a mainstream attack. It didn't recur, but it had happened. There was an attack on the Government Accountability Office. So there was an attack on the Congressional Budget Office. And if you say we can't believe what the Congressional Budget Office says because it's politically biased or you distrust its methods, then the basis that the Republicans and Democrats have to determine the plausible effects of legislation just disappears. So you can't trust the Bureau of Labor Statistics we have no way to determine whether unemployment's getting worse, getting better, its nature and scope. But these were not broadside attacks made by many people. I had just seen them made upon occasion and wanted to flag the, the prospect that they could become more prevalent. And if they became more prevalent, it would become far more difficult to govern. Now, jump forward from 2013 to 2018, you now routinely hear that any institutionalized source of knowledge uh, that provides ideologically inconvenient data is politically motivated, is suspect, has rigged the system, you know, is, is filled with venal partisans, etc. And we have now seen what was, in 2013, an attack on the horizon become an attack dominating the landscape. Yeah, it was a very precious talk. Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> there, there are times in which you just don't want to be right. You want to be, you know, the, the person who is crying wolf, and there really is no wolf. So you, you want to you know, cry wolf, and then someone says, no, that was just a German shepherd misbehaving. In this case, I cried wolf, and it turned out there was a pack of them right around the corner. And, and, and I want to talk about those wolves, but I, I was wondering if you could first talk a little bit more about this idea of a, the custodians of knowledge. 
you talked about some institutions often affiliated with or, or uh, with the government, but it's more, the custodians of knowledge go beyond that. Can you tell us a little bit about who these custodians of knowledge are and how you see knowledge and truth being established in the public sphere? I don't use the word truth just because at one point I was a philosophy major and I don't want to get into metaphysics, but the, the notion that there is the knowable, that is, as best we can know with the available methods, carefully specified. We, to the extent that we can know things, we can act more intelligently. And so our systems, our organizational systems, have set up structures that are designed to capture and refine and communicate that knowledge. And in, in the governmental sector, the executive branch, the Bureau of Labor Statistics is one. And there are closed door behind the scenes academic debates that are very technical among experts about whether the measures are doing what they're supposed to. And those debates largely don't happen in public. Those are the experts trying to improve things. So at one point, we took what was called you know, gross national product and reconceptualized it as gross domestic product. Now, this wasn't a big debate that said, oh, that's a flawed indicator. People were manipulating. It was experts saying it's not as precise as it could be. We can better capture the phenomenon. So in, historically, that kind of institution used the expert community in order to refine the ways that it knew so that when the public got the information, it would be the most reliable that could exist. And Bureau of Labor Statistics is one. Now look at all the policy we make based on Bureau of Labor Statistics and imagine that the measure weren't there. So when both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump suggested that the unemployment rate was actually much higher than the Bureau of Labor Statistics said it was. At one point, figures were put out in the 40% range. When they talk about official unemployment, which is what the president talked about, that's a different number than real unemployment. The unemployment rate is probably 20%, but I will tell you, you have some great economists that will tell you it's 30, 32, and the highest I've heard so far is 42%. There are measures of kinds of unemployment that, that could fall into higher ranges, but they have to be specified. You have to know whether these are people who've dropped out of the labor force, was it voluntary and involuntary, had they exhausted their unemployment compensation. But the measure that we usually use across time to compare is the standard unemployment rate, what we call unemployment rate in public discourse. So when suddenly someone comes in with another measure, asserts another number, and uses the, the measure of unemployment rate as the base, and now says, well, it's really 42%. It looks as if it was 5 and it's now 42. Well, that's comparing apples to aardvarks. But more importantly, those attacks were challenging the institution as a means of communicating the knowledge and the institution's ways of knowing. And why is it controversial? Because it's playing to a base that is dissatisfied with the status quo in an electoral context in which there were others using another metric, and now we have a confused public. In the past, the president has referred to particular job reports as phony or totally fiction. Does the president believe that this jobs report was accurate and a fair way to measure the economy? Yeah, I, I talked to the president prior to this, uh, and he said to quote him very clearly, they may have been phony in the past, but it's very real now. <laughs> but it's also problematic because the policy that you make to fix it if it's 42% is different than the policy you make if it's 6%. And it's different than the policy you make if it's 4%. You can actually put a policy in place based on a misstated set of, of assumptions and as a result, you know, mis misspecified data that gives you the exact opposite effect of what you want for the country. So it's really consequential that these things are gotten right and that we trust the people who, who offer these data enough to say that we can have these discussions without spending a whole lot of time asking, what is it that you know? We can assume that they know. So now fast forward into an election season in which it's routine 
to challenge anything that anybody offers from any of these agencies. And now you make it very difficult to campaign. You make it virtually impossible to govern well. And isn't the role of journalism and the media also to translate some of the work that is being done by this one sector of the custodians of knowledge? And so what's the role of journalists and the media in terms of making the knowable known to the voting public who will then affect what policy is enacted? Well, the journalists not only have a translation function, but they also have a function that, that requires, and I use required with care, with care, it requires that they explain to us why those agencies know what they know, how they know what they know, so that the public doesn't simply assume the data in a, in a polarized environment where it's being challenged. The journalist's job is also to say, this is the model, this is how they work, this, this is the role of the economists, and this is why across time, and this is the most important thing that one can say about, for example, the Congressional Budget Office, which helps Congress determine the effective legislation, how we've protected the integrity of the knowledge. So when you attack the Congressional Budget Office, it's important that the press step in and say, wait a minute, you person attacking. We want the public to know that the people who are in charge of the Congressional Budget Office are selected through a bipartisan process. These are people who are carefully vetted. These are not partisans. These are people who are respected in their own communities, and their job is to protect the integrity of the data. So the press role is not simply communicating what those custodians know, but also, when it's challenged, how we have protected what they know. And if something has corrupted those processes, then the journalist's job is to uncover those and to hold them accountable for the corruption. But we don't have any evidence that the government, you know, the Congressional Budget Office or the Government Account Accounting Office or the Bureau of Labor Statistics have been corrupted. So that brings me back to the wolves that uh, you heard uh, in 2013 that now in 2018 are, I think you referred to them as a pack of wolves. Um, so how do things look now uh, in light of, um, you know, the recent election and everything that's happening uh, in the world today? Well, one of the, the problems with the world in which we can't agree on what is knowable is that anybody can make any statement and there's no way to adjudicate it. So one of journalism's functions is to ask, against a set of claims and counterclaims, what is the knowable? What can we reasonably say we know? And if every place the journalist goes to find that knowledge, that basis to ground the argument, has been challenged as being partisan and rigged and disreputable and motivated by venal intent, then we don't actually have any way, when you get into these highly controversial environments, to say anything other than, okay, you're a liberal, vote this way, you're a conservative, vote that way, because there is no known ground on which the two sides can contest, and there's no known ground from which they can offer alternative solutions. So we not only make it more difficult to offer good solutions, because we don't have the good evidence to justify, but we also make it more difficult for people to see that you know, the other side may actually have a point of view that's legitimate with evidence that is important and as a result ought to be incorporated into the argument. So how did we get to where we are? In your 2013 talk, you mentioned Citizen United as having a role in attacking or undermining uh, these custodians of knowledge. Citizen United world, we now have a situation in which deceptive advertising backed by large amounts of money is making it more difficult for good policy to be enacted and simultaneously that there is a challenge to the ability of both of these communities that are the custodian of the knowable to function effectively in the policy arena. 
Can you talk a little bit about how that case may have done that, but more generally the things that have happened in our society, either with technology or changes in the media, that have made uh, the work of the custodians of knowledge harder to do? I made a second argument in the paper, which was that we who study communication and politics have tended to focus on the roles of advertising and campaigns and not looked at the ways in which advertising and campaigns can affect governance. And that argument said, for example, in 1988, a campaign long before the recall of many in your audience, you had a contest over the nature of furlough programs in prisons in which both sides, the Republican and the Democrat, George Herbert Walker Bush and Michael Dukakis, both offered advertising that discredited a furlough system of some sort. Dukakis did as well. Dukakis did as well by suggesting that someone had jumped furlough from a halfway rehabilitation house as coming while coming out of the judicial system. And so in that environment, they both suggested using fear appeals. Dukakis not only opposes the death penalty, he allowed first-degree murderers to have weekend passes from prison. One was Willie Horton, who murdered a boy in a robbery, stabbing him 19 times. Despite a life sentence, Horton received 10 weekend passes from prison. Horton fled, kidnapped a young couple, stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend. Weekend prison passes. Dukakis on crime. In that case, George Herbert Walker Bush and an independent expenditure committee, the independent expenditure committee making the most hyperbolic and inaccurate claims, that... The furlough prison system in which we let people go out for short periods of time under supervision to get used to being back in the community before they are actually released, and that's essentially what a furlough is, that that system was broken and was letting first-degree murderers not eligible for parole out into our communities to rape and murder. First, the likelihood of that happening is minuscule. It has happened occasionally, even at that point in view, it was, but even at that point in time, but it was not a pervasive problem. But what happened by virtue of a large-scale advertising campaign coupled with a media campaign, that is, people going around the country making this allegation, was that the, those people who were in the state government systems, governors, heard the possibility that if anybody got out on furlough and committed a crime, it could be used against them as it was being used effectively against Dukakis. And as a result, governors and state systems began pulling back their furlough program. And my argument said this, there's a large block of academic research that says furloughs are good. They increase the likelihood that those who have spent their time in prison, have been rehabilitated, are able to reintegrate into their community. They reduce recidivism. They reduce the likelihood those people come back into prison. All of that is good. It's good for them. It's good for the country. It's good for the economy because we don't have to pay to to take care of them back in prison. So if something pulls back the furloughs, we've actually done social harm. And one argument of the paper was that set of ads, a large block of advertising of independent expenditure on the side, increased the likelihood that governors and penal systems in states restricted their furloughs, and that did social harm. And in that piece, now I'm going to answer your question about money, the independent expenditure piece is driven by money outside the campaigns. So now, when Citizens United opens the floodgates of money into independent expenditures, you increase the likelihood that we get that kind of game playing in campaigns, and the threat of an advertising campaign on an issue can create action, even though the advertising hasn't actually taken place. And so now we've created a pernicious loop in which 
just the anticipation that you might be advertised against with large amounts of money that you'll have trouble rebutting because first you're not going to have the resources but secondly that's playing on fear which is very difficult to counteract will yield actions that are not in the best interests of the country. Your furlough uh, example actually reminds me of a quote that you also used in uh, your talk. In 2004, an aide to President George W. Bush told reporter Ron Suskind that guys like me, that would be reporters, were in what we call the reality-based community, which he defined as people who believe that solutions emerge from your judicious study of discernible reality. But that's not the way the world really works anymore, said this aide to George W. Bush. He continues, we're an empire now. When we act, we create our own reality. And here in the furlough example, ads are creating a reality or a perceived reality that is in fact different from what the facts and the numbers say. So can you talk about how, what, about that quote and how realities are being constructed today and, and what that means? Well, the, the reason that I like that quote so much, and it was an anonymous, as an unattributed quote to a journalist, and it's basically explaining that the communication capacities, and this was in 2004, are such that journalists are chasing a world that doesn't exist, that the realities created by the political structures are so strong and convincing that people are living there even though that isn't reality. And what that means in practice is I can play on your fears and you will overgeneralize the likelihood that you'll be killed by someone who's been furloughed. I can play on your fears and you'll increase the likelihood that what, what is actually happening uh, with immigration is large numbers of people are crossing the border in order to rape and murder. You know, actually, immigrants crossing the border, are, uh, undocumented immigrants crossing the border, have a lower crime rate than do those of the population at large. So, But I can use the capacities of communication to play on your fears to create a reality that you will live within and that the, those who would like to hew to what's actually out there as best we can know it will not be able to penetrate. That was a prescient statement because by the time we get to, to you know, the last election, what you basically have is the new media structures, the social media structures, taking constructions of reality that are conspiracy-based and have no reality at all. Remember Pizzagate, where a, a poor, deluded individual shows up with a gun to rescue children who are you know, being endangered by Hillary Clinton in the basement of a pizza parlor. Well, where does that come from? That's an alternative reality spread through conspiracy theorists across social media platforms among the like-minded and into a community that is fearful, and now an individual acts on it and potentially could have hurt someone. I mean, fortunately, the person is apprehended. That's the manifestation of the capacity to construct reality that that anonymous Bush aide was talking about carried to its logical conclusion. It, it is quite scary. And uh, you know, I want to know if you could talk about how we got like this, because... In the early days of the internet, the internet was going to facilitate greater access to information, theoretically greater access to that knowable data. And you do have more access to it that does material. That. No question, it and, does and that. People are more connected than they ever have been, but at the same time, people are more fragmented and they're more exposed to these false stories that are leading to action. Um, how do we think about social media? We think about social media as a very complex new technological environment in which the capacity to, to do good is magnified, but the capacity to do harm is magnified as well. The ability of social media to give you access to knowledge has created the capacity now for 
someone in my position, someone who wants to do research, to access more information that is accurate more quickly to assemble arguments than I ever could before in my life. It's all at my fingertips. I can immediately get to everything that's in the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, for example, when I want to check something, or the, the Census Bureau if I want to check something. It's accelerating our capacity to generate knowledge. It's wonderful. At the same time, the capacities of the structures underlying these platforms you know, are, are such that they can be exploited to create like-minded enclaves of people who don't open themselves to new for forms of information, but instead are caught inside a web in which misinformation and conspiracy theorizing and appeals to fear are creating a whole coherent alternative reality for them in which they then can act, including in which they can vote or decide not to vote. And the challenge right now is taking the capacities of the web to diffuse information and knowledge and the capacities of the web to increase our understanding of how we know those things and get through those enclaves of like-minded individuals in order to minimize the likelihood that damaging information that is socially harmful will spread. And it's a challenge in an environment in which those companies are privately held. At this point, they are not subject to traditional forms of regulation. Um, until recently, they weren't even subject to the kind of advertising regulation that governs our broadcast and cable. And so their capacities for anonymous individuals to come into them and disguise who they are to manipulate people were another facet of what was problematic. The Russians came in because it was easy to disguise your identity. Now the platforms are moving to try to ensure that the identity of the communicator is flagged and we know the person's communicating from inside the United States when that person is engaged in electoral communication. Wish they'd figured out how to do that between before 2016, but with any new communication technology, there's a ramp-up period. Unfortunately, our ramp-up period occurred at a time in which the Russians were ready to exploit our technological capacities. Well, that actually brings me to a question in the back of my mind. And I want to talk about the Russian incidents in the last election, uh, but I also want to talk about the United States, because I couldn't help thinking when I listened to your talk uh, and then read the paper that you published about how the U.S. may create realities abroad as well. It's not just Russia coming here, but we have a, a massive media presence throughout the world, and we're shaping the way people view us and view the world and view their country within the world. So can you talk a little bit about how, how the U.S. shapes reality beyond its borders? All countries try to control their image at home and abroad, and you expect them to. Um, the United States has done something far more pernicious than simply communicate its image abroad. The United States has actively fear, interfered in the elections of other countries. And so when Vladimir Putin says the United States has been routinely interfering, including in my own past election. You know, he is not making a statement that is implausible. Um, we have overthrown heads of state. The United States has been complicitous in the execution of individuals who are the leaders of other countries. Uh, you know, there's, and that is documented in our own past. So it's not that we come into this in clean, with clean hands. What we have right now is the first time that it's been systematically exploited against us inside a new technology. And one of the things that we need to think about as a country and other countries need to think about is whether we have a disarmament agreement about social media interference in other countries, um, in which we basically say that like certain forms of gas in warfare after World War I, there's some things we will just agree not to do. Now, that may take some U.S. actions off the table, as it undoubtedly should. It's highly hypocritical to say, well, it's okay if we do it, but boy, they better not do it to us. It's really unethical if you do it to us. That also brings me to something else I want to talk about, which is the development of new institutions that are serving the custodians of knowledge, 
organizations like factcheck.org. Um, and those are relatively young, uh, new institutions in 2013. How do they fit into uh, the scene now five years later? How have they weathered these attacks? Um, what's the role that they're serving now? And, and how might they be able to change going forward? Well, the very notion of fact is now being challenged. Um, and the, there's some complicity here for the academic community that for a dysfunctional decade and a half, um, you know, put forward as one body of knowledge coming out of some of our academic disciplines, the notion that everything is perspectival, that there is no such thing as fact, um, and that everything needs to be deconstructed in order to find lurking forms of hierarchy and patriarchy within it. All of that is potentially interesting and important in some domains at some times. It's not helpful in elections. And so in an environment in which we need to be able to, to ground things in the knowable, and journalists perform that function. It is one of the roles of journalism. Independent groups have emerged, and myfactcheck.org is one. We actually founded that in 2003. Uh, that's the election that would give us that famous statement by the George W. Bush aide. Um, in order to increase the likelihood that where we can anticipate it, we have taken a piece of information and, and looked at it carefully and shown how you can better know what is, in fact, knowable. And that was the goal of factcheck.org. When I founded it with Brooks Jackson in 2003, it was because journalists were increasingly, when one candidate said one thing and the other candidate contradicted it, covered it by saying, he said this, he said this, or she said this, she said this, rather than saying, this person said this, that person said this, and here is what we can reasonably know from the available custodians of knowledge or from the available data that's publicly disclosable, and here are the links. So the goal in 2003 was to reform journalism, to get journalism to play its fact-checking role, its custodian of knowledge role. And we, we basically um, were, were attempting to change a structure that would hold the system accountable as a result, but also hold the candidates accountable. Other groups have joined our effort. PolitiFact now is active, won a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, Kessler at the Washington Post, they've now institutionalized. They have a fact-checking function called the Fact Checker. Snopes was there ahead of us, but largely checking urban legends, although they did some politics and they still do. So there are at least four major groups right now, and the news media increasingly are doing their own fact-checking. So we could say that the good news is there's a lot more of it. The bad news is there's more distrust of all of those who do it. Because consistent with what I argued in 2013, there have been systematic efforts to argue that the press is biased and all the fact checkers are biased. It turns out the actual claim is they're biased whenever they disagree with us because those politicians who don't like fact-checking seem to like it quite well when it says that they've been accurate and their opponent has been falsifying information. So we've talked a little bit about the 2016 election and the role of Russia using these platforms uh, to change and create these realities we were talking about. Can you tell us a little bit more about your own personal research into this and the findings? I have a book coming out in September, which is called Cyber War, and that's a deliberate attempt to say this kind of intrusion should be analogized to war, traditionally constructed war. The subtitle is How Russian Hackers and Trolls Helped Elect a President. The sub-subtitle is what we don't, can't, and do know. And the argument of the book is that the Russian trolls in the social media and the Russian hackers, and then distributed through WikiLeaks, managed to increase the likelihood that those voters whom Trump needed to win, either by mobilizing them or by demobilizing, uh, demobilizing likely Hillary voters, mobilizing the voters he needed to win, or shifting voters, um, managed to create media streams out of the social media platforms that amplified, increased the likelihood that certain 
claims that were already circulating in the United States. There's very little new content the Russians are putting in. Were more more salient. They were more visible than they otherwise would be, and they did it in a way that did target the appropriate groups. They did try to reach evangelicals and veterans. Those are two groups Trump needed to mobilize. They did try to reach African Americans and Sanders supporters to demobilize, and he needed fewer of those to vote. And they did try to shift voters to Stein. We know all of that. We don't know whether or not those efforts specifically succeeded in the close states that decided the election because the targeting data are not yet available. At some point when they're available, we'll have an ability to make the next inference. But right now, they did everything they needed to if they got the targeting right to create an effect. The Russian hackers managed illegally to break into the Democratic vaults, essentially, the Democratic email structures, the Democratic servers, and pick off whole blocks of Democratic content, which they dropped into the electorate um, across the period, beginning with the Democratic Convention, in order to change the media agenda against Hillary Clinton, in order to unsettle her campaign, in order to increase the likelihood that journalists were chasing those stories and not other things, and they accomplished all of those things. They essentially managed, with the hacked, illegally gotten stolen content through WikiLeaks, you know, essentially a front group, functioning as a front group for the Russians in this election, to very artfully disrupt the media agenda. And what the talk argued was the, they exploited the capacities of the social media structures to aggregate up the like-minded in order to appeal to those target groups. They exploited our press media structures, which tend to gravitate towards scandal, toward anything that looks like it was hidden, toward anything that says, ah, the appearance was not the reality, to anything that could be framed as being tactically interesting, and as a result, managed to help create an anti-Clinton agenda and news that otherwise would not have been there. And that was the argument of the talk today. And the message essentially was, social media platforms, fix that. Journalists, you better figure out how you're going to do better next time because this isn't about Trump or about Clinton. This is about disruption of our election. We often talk about Russia attacking, but how they actually did it. I mean, was there a, a arm of the state? And if so, what department was it in? Did they hire a group of uh, Russian computer scientists? Do we know how they actually yes, did this? Yes, take a look at the Mueller indictment, essentially, of the troll operation. Um, and you know, what, what you see is that you know, there's a St. Petersburg troll farm which consists of people who are spending their days posting material on social media to a, 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 basically a command at a certain point that they were going to try to help Trump um, and they were going to try to hurt Clinton. And you know, the, these are individuals who have varying capacities. Some of them had English that was so clearly Russian-based that you could tell that they were Russians because they kept dropping the indefinite, indefinite article. Some of those were so fluent in English that reputable conservatives retweeted them. Mm-hmm. So it's not as if they were, they were just brilliant and everything they did was on target. They did so many different things that some of it was right. And enough of it was right in the right direction to say they probably made some difference. At least they didn't get hurt. There was nothing anywhere in our media stream during the election that created a penalty for them. So any effect they had would have been positive. There was no evidence of backlash against them. Because when our government disclosed... Uh, on October 7th that the Russians were behind the hacks. It basically never got into the media agenda. We've talked about the, the, the present and the future. I want to actually ask you about the past. And 
I'm an early Americanist by training. I study the 18th and 19th century. And I can't help thinking about the election of 1800 between Adams and Jefferson, yep. which was nasty election. contested. Absolutely. Nasty and election. so, uh, uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson was accused of supporting rape and incest. Yep. Uh, and that was in the newspapers and everywhere. And then uh, later, Andrew Jackson, um, a Whig uh, newspaper said, you know, Jackson's mother was a prostitute and mm-hmm. all this. So, and he so, wasn't legally married to his wife. Right. And, and so, uh, you know, how different are we? Well, the, the difference is not in our capacity to attack. The difference is in our capacity to seed the attack deeply and quickly into a vulnerable electorate. So all the attacks you're talking about were print, put up on broadsides, that you had to read. Um, and the power of the written word compared to the power of visually evocative content, potentially reinforced over time, is dramatically different. So... You know, you had to go to the broadside to see the broadside. You had to see it carried on a banner in a parade. That means you weren't being routinely reinforced in seeing it every time you went on the web with other versions of the content. So it's not that the nature of the attacks is different. We're basically still attacking people on the same kinds of grounds. It's that our capacity to use those attacks to insinuate illegitimate inferences into an electorate is higher. So would you say the television was actually perhaps the real turning point? Um, radio was the first turning point. Um, television increased the capacity, and now what the social media uh, environment does is lets you pull together people who are like-minded into a community in which the extreme becomes normalized and in which the voices that might object are systematically silenced because it is so clear in those environments that they're unwelcome. So if you could wave a wand and make everything function as it should in a perfect world, mm. what would that look like? The best election in terms of argument and engagement in my lifetime was 1960, in which you had two candidates who treated each other with respect, uh, who engaged each other on the issues, who accurately reflected each other's positions in presidential debates. Now, that is a campaign that also has a major cover-up in it. Kennedy is covering up Addison's disease. It has a major deception. Kennedy didn't actually write most of his Pulitzer Prize-winning book. Um, he probably didn't deserve the honors he got over PT-109. So it's not that there aren't deceptions in the campaign. It's that the campaign itself was conducted on grounds that were relevant to governance and issued relevance to governance. So we've had campaigns that were substantive and engaged. Uh, the 80 campaign is a good campaign. Again, you, know, you, you can look at the transcripts of everything across that election and see what the differences are between Carter and Reagan. And you can say they engaged each other. They, they debated their relative merits. Uh, there's more engagement in 60 than 80, but the engagement in 80 is good, and largely 80 is a clean campaign, so is 60. So within the modern era, we've had campaigns that look pretty good. They satisfy a democratic ideal, and they do it on three grounds. I argue this in a book called Dirty Politics. To have a good campaign, you need argument. That means statement with evidence. You need engagement. The other side has to engage that argument and the evidence with its own argument and engagement. And you need accountability. So if someone is deceptive, they need to be held accountable. But they also need to be accountable for positive discourse that offers good alternatives that are carefully vetted. If you get argument, engagement, and accountability, you pretty much don't have a deceptive campaign. You can't have a deceptive campaign and meet those thresholds. And by those standards, those two campaigns passed. By those two standards, this last campaign did not. By those standards, the 88 campaign did not. The 64 campaign did not. So, so does it come down then to leadership and uh, the, the personality and decisions of the presidential candidates? Yeah, if I could rerun 2016 from an ideal, 
Um, and, I, and I couldn't change anything that was actually happening. I could just change the behaviors of human beings on our side. So the Russians get to do everything the Russians are going to do. And I'll even let the press do everything the press is going to do. So let me just say I'm going to alter the behavior of the candidates. And I want to give you a hypothetical. Let's suppose that exactly the same thing happened in, that happened in 2016, happened in 2008, or happened in 2012. What do you think that John McCain would have done in 2008? And what do you think Mitt Romney would have done in 2016? I can bet that they would have stood up and said, Russians, we absolutely condemn this. Congress, do something. You know, regulatory platforms, what do you think you're doing? I want no support from any of this. Followers, you look for this kind of junk. We're not going to put up with it. I can pretty much guarantee that had an incumbent gone to Congress, that Congress, under most past years, now I'm going to qualify this a little bit more, would have both Republicans and Democrats stood up to say, we want the public to know the Russians did the hacking. We want you to know that this is inappropriate and we condemn it. And I can bet that there in some years at least, if the Democrats under these circumstances went to the Republicans and said, this is illegitimate content, we don't want you to use it, that the Republicans would have said, yeah, it's, you're right, it could happen to us too. Let's just simply say we're not going to make use of it. Now you could build, that's all human behavior, and none of that happened this time. So the Republicans in the Senate and House would not stand up with the Democrats on this. They were asked to. Trump said, bring it on. You know, go find those 30,000 emails. So what we have here is a change in the ethos underlying the body politic, a change in the nature of the candidate's character. And in Congress, such a distrust of the other party that the Republicans weren't sure that Obama was not playing them, or alternatively, such a desire to win that they weren't willing to cooperate, neither speaks well of those individuals. And what is the role of the academy uh, in all of this? Um, and have you seen a change over time in your own career? Um, because so much of the work that you do ref is a commentary on the way our political system is functioning, ways to improve it. The, there's a large amount of scholarly work now, and you're seeing it reflected in the American Philosophical Society's programming, about how the institutional structures are being perverted and how they need to be brought back into balance. So concerns about gerrymandering, for example. I mean, what, what do the alternatives look like? Uh, discussions about civility. You know, what, what does it mean when we erode basic civility norms? Um, discussions about the, 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 the fundamental principles articulated by the founders and how durable those founders are. Um, and those founding principles are. And one of the, the thing, places that, one of the reasons I find the American Philosophical Society meetings so rich is that the scholars there tend to step back and put things in historical context. They tend to be very comfortable asking philosophical questions. And so they rarely ground what they're doing in the here and now alone. They ground it in what we've learned across time from other scholars, from other theorists, from other institutions, and also from the best traditions of scholarship. I think that's the appropriate role of the scholarly community. It's to remind us that we're not only situated in the moment. We're situated in relationship to whole bodies of knowledge across long periods of time that have produced some durable principles and have produced some reliable ways of knowing that if we bring them to the fore, will help us grapple in difficult times. I think the role of the academy is to increase the likelihood that those we graduate have viable, doable ways of knowing well have the ethical standards to employ them constructively, and have the character disposition when they're called upon to act in appropriate ways. And I think that's been the role of the scholarly community going back at least a quintillion in ancient Roman times. I think for a long period of time, 
those in the academy in various incarnations have thought about that role, and I think it remains the same. And periodically we go off the rails, um, and we go off the rails in ways that are problematic. The whole move to deconstruct everything in postmodernism took us off the rails. It's not that there aren't some interesting insights there. It's you apply them into this democratic sphere, and you actually do harm. So it's not that we universally do good. Uh, there are also times in which the academy speaks in such technical language that no reasonable human being outside the community can understand it. It's not that the knowledge is not useful, it is within that, that small community, but it's not able to perform its larger function of enriching the democratic debate. And sometimes when it needs to, some of our most capable people aren't speaking in a language the audience can, can understand. And so another of our goals in the academy should be to ensure that when our graduates leave, they're able to be parts of their community and intelligible to their community as they act ethically on the knowledge and the methods that they've gained. So in 2013, you were talking about the custodians of knowledge and the threats that you saw. Uh, you weren't sure if they were wolves or you know, German shepherds, as you said. So it's 2018. What do you worry about now? And what in five years do you worry may come true? The attacks on our institutions have now spread beyond the custodians of knowledge. When you see attacks on the judiciary and on the capacity of the judiciary to render fair judgments, you're attacking a branch of government that the founders put in place with very specific responsibilities to be an independent branch and to have capacities that are far-reaching to hold our system in balance. I worry more now about attacks on the judiciary than I do about attacks on our electoral system, although I'm worried about attacks on our electoral system and I'm worried about polarization. To the extent that our judges act in ways that are consistent with the law and the Constitution, they will, in times that are difficult for the nation, help us navigate. They may not be the ones who navigate, but they will help us navigate through. And when they get it wrong, the consequences are very real. And so they got Japanese internment wrong. Um, and you know, the fact that they haven't struck down the Korematsu decision and, and buried it you know, with great relish and, and stomped on its grave is of somewhat concern because technically it, it still is there as a, live, as a live ruling, although I don't think anybody would seriously act on it again. I, I would hope that no one would ever seriously act on it again. But when they get it wrong, it's consequential. So it, when, when the attacks have extended beyond the attacks on custodians of knowledge and attacks on the press to attacks on the judiciary, we've now crossed another line, and it's a problematic line. Is there anything proactively that can be done? The public needs more understanding from the press than it is currently getting about the process by which judges adjudicate. There's a lot more agreement on the Supreme Court than the public's aware of, by the way. So to the extent that the close decisions, the five fours, get the news coverage, the public is more likely to think we have a divided court than we actually have. A large block of what the Supreme Court decides is decided with, with much greater consent, uh, consensus than 5-4. So to the extent that the press communicates, that they agree a lot more than they disagree, and they agree in greater numbers than they do in these close cases, these closely decided cases. They will help us understand that there's something grounding them that is not partisanship. Um, to the extent that the press calls the judge who makes the ruling the Republican-nominated judge or the Democratic-nominated judge or judge nominated by Democrats, um, they're doing a disservice. Um, and when they feature that, ah, you know, Gorsuch differed from the other, you know, conservatives in the court, that assumes that you can nicely parse these people and that they decide everything based on partisan grounds. They're humans. Ideology is undoubtedly there someplace, but there are other things that are grounding those decisions, too. 
And it's important that we not lose track of that. It's also important that we vet our judges carefully so they're people of integrity. Um, every time there's a scandal and a corrupt judge is taken out of office, it hurts the judiciary. So the last question I want to ask is we, we've talked a lot about all that is wrong. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about something that you think is going right right now? Yeah. The, uh, we tend to focus on the national level, um, in part because that's what we can all see in common. So you know, I'm in Pennsylvania, and my you know, family in Minnesota, and my family in Texas, and my family in Hawaii have in common. We have a federal government. I don't have much in common with the rest of what's happening in their states. There's a lot of good democratic engagement at the local level. And we're sitting in Philadelphia right now. Um, I've lived in Philadelphia for a long time. I've been here since 1989. Um, we're, we're a community of neighborhoods. Um, when people say, where do you live? I don't say Philadelphia. I say West Mount Airy. People know West Mount Airy. We are a neighborhood. We have neighborhood block parties. We have co-ops. Um, you know, the when somebody's in trouble in our neighborhood, we help the person who's in trouble. We don't say, are you a Trump supporter? Are you a Clinton supporter? Oh, well, you didn't vote the same way I did, so, you know, I'm not going to come and bring you soup when I know that you're ill. Um, the, the neighborhood strength across many places remains. As, as areas have become urban and have lost their neighborhoods, we've lost something. And you can tell the difference between a Philadelphia with its neighborhoods and places that don't have the same kind of neighborhood ethic. You also are seeing at the mayoral level people working very hard not to fall into the partisan traps. Uh, There's a person who is the mayor of San Antonio. His name is Ron Nirenberg. And self-disclosure, he's an Annenberg graduate. We're very proud of him. He's governing differently. He's trying to govern from nonpartisan space. He's trying to create a different kind of community. There's a lot more of that than we see in the national news because the national news is focused on the national news. And so when when I feel as if everything is going wrong, First, I look to the rationale that judges offer for their opinions, and I respect the fact that they argue carefully with evidence. And even when I disagree with them, I respect the fact that that's an institution that has argument, evidence, and accountability as a norm. But secondly, I look to what's happening in locales and neighborhoods. You can't destroy our systems unless you destroy that, and that is still, in many cases, vibrant and alive. Great. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Great Talks at the American Philosophical Society. You can find more information about this episode, including archival collections related to its topics, on the Society's website at www.amphilsoc.org. Great Talks is produced by Abigail Shelton and Joseph DeLulo. Sound design and audio production is provided by Greenhouse Media. Our theme music is New England Triptych, composed by William Schumann and recorded by the president's own U.S. Marine Band. Your host is Dr. Patrick Spiro, and I'm David Spunt.